leave here having encountered you in a very real way. <clears throat> we love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Amen. Okay, well, I'm super excited to dive into the text tonight. Um, last week, Madison did a great job walking us through the beginning of the letter. We saw Paul greeting the church at Thessalonica with so much warmth. He was saying how much he was encouraged by the evidence of their faith. He reminded them of the example he had set for them, and he encouraged them in their suffering. And today, we're going to kind of move along in the letter. We're going to still be in this encouragement part of the letter, and we're going to see how he's going to continue to love them well and model biblical love. <clears throat> we're going to kind of then shift into kind of that second section of the letter in chapter 4 when he kind of moves into kind of giving them some instructions and telling them how they should live. But even though we're going to be in kind of two different sections of the letter that have two different purposes, we're going to see an overarching theme that kind of ties it all together. We're going to see really all of our main themes that we pointed out in week one. We're going to see a lot of faith, a lot of hope, and a lot of love. But the theme of the day is going to be love. And we're going to really dig in tonight up to what biblical love looks like. And I am really excited about it. So let's go ahead and open up your either your booklet or your Bible to chapter 2. And I'm going to read aloud chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 3. Because this really is one thought process from Paul here. <clears throat> but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time... In person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain." But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. <clears throat> now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Okay, so in this section that we just read, we see that Paul and Silas and Timothy, he says again, we were torn away from you. And he's letting them know, guys, even though I'm absent in body, my heart is still very much with you. He lets them know time and time again, I tried so hard to come back to you. When I couldn't, I sent Timothy. So he is really letting them know how much he cares. Guys, I have moved a lot of times in my life. And I've had a lot of people move away from me. So I've had to leave people that I love and I care about so deeply people that I've lived life with, that I've walked through trials with, that I've mourned with, that I've celebrated with, and people who just, they have a very deep and special place in my heart. 
when I think about these people today that are all over the country and the world, I think a lot of emotional thoughts about them. And maybe I might send them a text. And that, might text, that text might say something like, oh, I was thinking about you today. Love you and missed you so much. I hope I get to see you again soon. Um, something along those lines. Okay, that is kind of what that produces in me. So even though I love these friends, they mean the world to me, and I truly do think that I care deeply for them, I don't think I would ever say that I just spend my days longing for them, and I'm certainly not trying to move heaven and earth to be able to go and see them. The times that I do happen to see them, it's usually because I happen to be in their area anyway. I might be like, hey, I'm coming out to California. Let me come and see you while I'm there. And so it's really more out of convenience. And so this is how I am towards close friends that I love dearly and that I spent years with. And somehow it kind of pales in comparison to how Paul is speaking to the Thessalonian church in this passage. And it kind of blows my mind when I kind of remember he was not with them for very long. Like if you looked it up in the homework, Acts 17 says that he reasoned in the synagogues for three Sabbath days, which means that he could have only been there for a few weeks. Now, a lot of commentators said that it could have been a little longer based on how much he was able to teach them. So they kind of said it may have been up to two months. Who knows? So either way, a couple of weeks to two months, that is not very long. I spent far much like greater amount of times with these friends that I have had to leave. So I know what missing a friend feels like. And this is clearly more than just missing some new friend. There's something more going on here. So what is going on here? Why are Paul's feeling towards the church so intense? What is different about this relationship? So we're going to look at a couple of things in the text to give us some insight as to why this is a little bit different than just a friendship. <clears throat> I want you to focus, like, hone in for a second on verses 19 and 20. Paul here says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So what does that mean? That's kind of a weird thing to say. Like, would you feel so awkward if I was like, you guys, you are my crown of boasting. Like, that's super awkward. We just wouldn't say that in our context. So let's ask, what did this mean? What would have this meant to them? Well, during that time, when there were athletic competitions, the winner would typically get a crown. So the word used here when he says, you are my crown, is the same word that would have been used for the type of crown that they would get in an athletic competition. So this crown, it kind of indicated a symbol of victory. It was the thing that gave that athlete a reason to boast. So think of like in our day in the Olympics, the pride that like a gold medalist would have when they were holding up that gold medal. That medal is kind of like the validation that all that they've worked for, the blood, the sweat, the tears, everything that they've poured themselves into training for night and days, that is kind of like, it's the validation that it was worth something. It's kind of their reason to boast. And so when you see an Olympian with a gold medal, or in Paul's day, an athlete with a crown, you know they're the real deal, okay? They're not just words. That crown that that athlete is wearing is the proof that there is something behind those words. There's something real, a real, like, achievement behind there, okay? So for Paul, had the church in Thessalonica never been formed, I think it's pretty safe to say he would still be able to stand before the Lord and his faith would still be true. It did not depend on the, the church in Thessalonica at all. But at the same time, most have pointed out that Paul sees the church there as sort of an evidence that his faith and his calling are true and genuine. <clears throat> They're kind of this outer symbol that he can point to when he's standing before the Lord and say, yes, my faith wasn't just words. He can point to it and say, my calling as an apostle wasn't just something I made up to build my own name. 
I can see how this spirit moves in this. I can see how the spirit worked in the life of this church that I planted. And that's my evidence that when I pour my whole life into this day after day and suffering this persecution for it, I have this evidence to say my faith is the real deal. Because, guys, <clears throat> when we have spiritual fruit, that's not something that we can produce within ourselves, right? That's something that the Holy Spirit does through it. So when we see spiritual fruit, that's evidence. That's evidence that our faith is genuine because we can't do it on our own, okay? So we see that Paul has this kind of faith that he believes is somehow linked to theirs. Like one commentator said, Paul's confidence in his own salvation at the end of time includes knowing that his faith is genuine because it bears fruit in the presence. And the Thessalonians' victorious faith is what he hopes to lay at Christ's feet as part of the evidence of his own faith, okay? So this idea of spiritual fruit being evidence. We talk a lot about spiritual fruit in the church, and I think a lot of times we view it as just something good and something that we should hope for. Um, but we need to see it as more than that because we need to realize that it is evidence. It's evidence that our faith is genuine because it's not things that we can produce on our own. If everything about my life was things that I can do in my own strength, there's no evidence that God is actually working or active in me or through me, right? Spiritual fruit is that evidence. So when I talk about spiritual fruit, there's kind of two ways that this happens. One is that it's something that is produced in us, and two, it's something that is produced through us, okay? So in us, when we talk about spiritual fruit that is produced in us, that's referring to just our sanctification, looking more and more like Jesus. It's things like, can we persevere when there's times of suffering? Do we find joy when things are hard? Do we have things like love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit that we see in the Bible? So that is kind of this idea of spiritual fruit in us. It's not just us trying to be a good person. It's God changing our hearts to make us look more like Christ. So that is the first kind of spiritual fruit. Also, though, we should be seeing fruit working through us, the Holy Spirit using us in the lives of other people, okay? And that is when we see other people come to know the Lord because of times that we have been around them, other people feeling encouraged, other people seeing Jesus more clearly in some way. It can look a lot of different ways. Because, you guys, when Jesus came to earth, he came to reconcile lost people back to God the Father. So when we become a Christian, we also enter into that work of reconciliation, okay? We are now agents of reconciliation. So the other half of spiritual fruit that we often neglect is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working through us in the lives of other people. It's easy to only focus on the fruit that we see within ourselves because, let's be honest, we kind of, it's easier just to look inward and focus on ourselves. It's a lot harder to ask, how is God using me in the lives of other people? But I don't want us to miss what Paul seems to have because he is focused on this external fruit. Look at the intensity of his longing for them, how much he loves them. Guys, I think we are missing out if we neglect our calling as believers to reconcile people to Christ, okay? So I think that that kind of gives us a little bit of explanation as to why Paul loved them in a little different light than just a friendship. But I think we can even take this a little bit further and think a little bit about just the suffering that he led them to, okay? So when you think about he's led, he's led them to Christ, and we hear a lot in the Bible about kind of like, you know, spiritual infants and like needing spiritual, you know, meats to grow to maturity. So if you think about it, he's kind of left this church of spiritual infants in a way. And he has left them in a hard situation 
full of persecution. And it's not like he's leaving them with a ton of resources. There's not going to be just a whole bunch of missionaries coming on through to continue the instruction that he started. So he is leaving them in a state of great need. Because he knows that he is one of the few people at that time to be able to really help meet those needs. Obviously, God can meet those needs however he wants. But Paul knows that he has a lot of information, a lot of guidance, a lot of help that they would really help them in this persecution that they were facing. They don't have, like, in, if, if I, you know, lost one of my spiritual mentors, there's like a dozen other people in Norman that I could call and ask for help about spiritual things. But they didn't have that. This was a church of spiritual babies that needed help. Like, imagine if you had a ba- like an actual baby, and you were the one nursing that baby, and then for some reason you were ripped away from it. And you know that that baby was left in a situation where they did not have access to milk or maybe not even formula. Like maybe just didn't, you didn't know what they were getting fed. You didn't know if the people who had them were just going to give them sugar water or what they had. You would be desperate to get to that baby because you know you had what they needed, okay? And so I think you would try and you would try. And if you just knew there was no way you could do it, you, could, you would find somebody else who could go for you. And you would send somebody else with some breast milk or formula, right? You would make sure that that baby got what it needed. And that is a little bit of how we can imagine Paul might have been feeling towards the Thessalonian church, okay? So this is a little bit more than just missing some friends. So that might help us to understand, wow, this is some pretty intense language, Paul. What's going on here? There really is substance behind that language. It is not just words. All right, so that might give us some understanding of why he felt so intensely towards them. Let's now look at what comes as a result of that love, what comes from that love, okay? How is Paul different from me when I text a friend who's moved away and I'm like, miss you, love you? Like, how is what Paul does a little bit different than that, a little bit more than that, okay? The next thing I think we're going to see in the text here is that this love that Paul had was not just words, but it led to action, okay? A lot of times when I love people, it's easy to speak words of care over them, but that love does not always get backed up with action. Back at the end of chapter 2, we saw that he told them again and again he tried to come to them. So it wasn't just, I tried one time and it didn't work out. He tried again and again and kept trying even though he was getting stopped by Satan. We don't know what that means, how he was getting stopped, um, but no matter what it was, he continued to try. And he did not give up to the point that when he just knew it was not going to happen for him, he sent somebody else, even though sending Timothy (coughs) kind of cost something from him. Um, It kind of was, it was kind of dangerous to be traveling at that time, especially for people who were Christians and like traveling to evangelize people. There was a lot of persecution at that time. So it would have been much easier for Paul and Timothy and Silas to be able to remain together. So he sent Timothy because he didn't give up finding a way to get to them. So we can see that when he expresses this love for them, that it's not just words. He backed up those words with action, action that did not quit, that did not give up, and it required sacrifice in splitting up his team. It put them at greater risk. It made it to be less safer to travel, okay, less comfortable than having their companions with them. So that's the first thing that we're going to notice about what came out of this love, okay? Now I want us to look at kind of the closing prayer that he prays over them in this section of this letter. So look again with me at chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. I'm going to read it again. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
So he says in this section that he wants them to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Okay? So we see that he's wanting them to copy him. He's wanting them to do what he does. So let's look again and say, okay, well, what is it that, what can we see, what can we observe about this whole as we do for you? What can we observe about what Paul has done and how he has loved them? So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to walk you through, we talked a lot in the first week about the CIA method, right? I'm going to walk you through some CIA right now so you can see how this can play out. Um, the C is the comprehension step. And so what we're going to do to help our comprehension is we're going to list some observations. There's like, um, there's this, like famous assignment that I keep hearing about from different people at Dallas Theological Seminary where this was a professor who does this assignment where he gives his class a verse. And he's like, I want you to go home and I want you to write down 50 observations about this verse. And it's super hard to come up with 50 observations. But he's clear that they have to be observations. Like you're not jumping ahead to interpretation. You're not trying to draw meaning from them, just straight observations. And so then they come back. He usually picks it apart and shows them how a lot of the things that they said weren't actually observations. And then he says, I want you to go home and find 50 more. Okay? So the point of that is a lot of times we look at a text, we take it at face value, but we don't push ourselves to make observations and then see where those observations take us. So I'm going to list some observations that maybe I've made about this text that we have read, and then we're going to kind of go through the steps of finding some interpretation and application from them. Okay? So what are some observations we can make about the passages that we've just read? Well, first, we can observe that Paul said in really elaborate terms that he loved them a lot. We can observe that he tried to come back to them again and again. We can observe that when he couldn't come back, he sent Timothy. So these are just simple observations that we can take from the text. Comprehension level stuff. Now let's take that a step further and ask, okay, well, what does that mean? If I take those three observations and ask, what does that mean? There's a lot of things that you could say that that means, but the thing that I thought of is that I would maybe interpret that to mean, well, it seems here like Paul's showing us that genuine biblical love often expresses itself in radical action, okay? So that's kind of some meaning we took from the text. Biblical love isn't just words. There's evidence to back up those words, okay? It expresses itself in action. Let's take some more observations. We observed in this text that Paul tried to come again and again. We observed that he had to separate from his companions. From our observations and what we know about the context at that time, we can observe that it was unsafe for them to travel this way. It was unsafe for Timothy to go alone. These are all just simple observations about the text. So what does that mean? Well, I could say that that means that this cost them something, right? For him to send Timothy by himself in a dangerous time and have less numbers in their group, that cost them something, okay? Let's make some more observations. We also see that Paul says that he has a crown of boasting now because of his relationship with them. So what does that mean? Well, I could say that that means that he's also gained something, right? There's been something that he has gained from his relationship with them. I'm going to make some more observations off of these things now. Okay, well, what do I observe about the things that it cost? Well, all those things, the things that being unsafe, they have a smaller numbers now, all these things, those are all worldly things. Like, those are all things that are just of this world and that are temporary, okay? What do I observe about what he gained? Well, I would say that crown of boasting, that's a spiritual thing. That's kind of an eternal thing that's going to last forever. So now I'm going to move on to, like, this big interpretation step. I've gotten a lot of observations I've made there, and I'm going to ask again the question. All of this together, what does that mean? Well, I would maybe say that it means that genuine biblical love in action often costs us something in a worldly sense 
but has far more to offer in a spiritual sense. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Genuine biblical love in action often costs us something in a worldly sense, but has far more to offer in a spiritual sense. So yeah, loving others often requires sacrifice. It means we're going to have to put aside our own needs and desires. But the cost is always a worldly cost. And the spiritual gain typically far outweighs it, okay? So when it's difficult for us to love people this way, when this isn't something that we're characterized by, how often is it because we're more focused on the worldly cost than we are on the spiritual gain? Man, I don't know about you guys, but that is an application that is convicting to my core, okay? So do you see how we did some simple comprehension work? Let it lead us into some interpretation. And now we're faced with this application that is a little bit gut-wrenching, right? So we should be examining our own hearts and our own lives and asking, do I love people in a way that's more than just words, that leads to action, even if that action comes at a cost? Am I more focused on the worldly cost of loving sacrificially and not enough on the spiritual gain? Guys, this kind of love is uncomfortable. It's not the warm and fuzzy kind of love that we like to think about. So are you understanding a little bit more why back in chapter 1, Paul calls it a labor of love, okay? It is hard work to love this way. Man, as much as I want us to just sit in that, because that in and of itself, I walk away with and I'm like, whew, a lot to think about. But we're going to have to move on to the next section. And guys, it's a really good thing that Paul spent those first you know, three chapters of the book, really showing them how to love in this way. He was modeling something for them. He was modeling biblical, godly, sacrificial love. And if you're a mom in here, you know the importance of modeling things for your children. It's Parenting 101. I can't act one way and expect my children to magically act another way, okay? Um, so <clears throat> it feels to me like more than a coincidence that Paul spent so much time modeling this kind of selfless, godly love for them before moving on to the second half of the letter where he's going to shift focuses and start asking something of them. He's going to start really challenging them on some areas of sin and kind of have calling them to maybe come back to where they are actually loving one another in a better way. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and see how when he does this, when he's kind of moving on to this like challenging them in areas of like telling them how they should act, like the whole rest of that we're going to look at today, he's going to be telling them things that they should or should not do. And when he does this, I want us to remember that this isn't him giving them a list of rules. He's not giving them a list of rules or things that they should or should not do. Instead, he's trying to teach them how to love each other well, okay? He wants them to love each other in a way that puts the needs of others first, in a way that costs them something. So we're going to move on to chapter 4, and we're going to see how Paul's example of how he has loved them is going to be a great template for how they are supposed to love one another in these two areas that he's going to focus on where they're falling short. So let's start with chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, kind of focus on the first area that he's going to instruct them in. He says, Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. 
For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. All right. So we see here that in this first area that he's going to hone in on, that he wants to give them instruction on, he's going to focus on sexual immorality. He's kind of making clear in this section that they are supposed to have self-control of their bodies, and they're supposed to abstain from sexually immoral actions. Now, when we read this, we kind of have some tendencies here. We either just view this through the lens of our own context and kind of ask, well, what does sexual immorality look in my culture? Or what does it look like for me? When we start to do that, we have a tendency to maybe feel shame. Shame for lines that we have crossed, maybe with a current or an ex-boyfriend, or impure thoughts maybe we've had not about our spouse, or um, that, you know, maybe it's even gone further than that. Okay, So while, yes, these verses do speak to our current context, I think we're missing some major elements if we don't first take a look at what the context was for the church in Thessalonica. Because in verse 5, you'll notice that Paul specifically says he wants them to not be like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, That's what he's trying to pull them away from. So we need to ask, what did the Gentiles who do not know God look like? What were they doing in regards to sexual immorality? Okay, What did that look like for them? So let's take a step back and look at the Gentile, like what it was like there in Thessalonica. We already kind of established that there was a small Jewish population in Thessalonica, but it was primarily Gentile. Now, the Jewish population, there was some expectation of sexual purity, like it was viewed as something for marriage. However, the majority of the population in Thessalonica was Gentile, and they did not have kind of this same expectation, okay? There were a lot of cults there that followed a lot of other gods and religions, and a lot of these actually prompted people towards sexual immorality. They kind of sometimes encouraged it as a part of their worship. So a lot of times these Gentiles who are now becoming a part of this Christian church, they would have a hard time understanding why it was necessary to stop all these practices that their previous religions approved of or even encouraged, okay? So this idea that there might be things that are sexually immoral, like the things that we're going to focus on, it kind of went against the social norms there. Now, so far, this we can see some parallels to our own culture. There's not that much difference because we also live in a culture where, as Christians, we understand to some extent that God designed sex to be within marriage. That is for our benefit, okay? There are boundaries around sex that God designed. However, we also live in a culture where sexual expression is really encouraged and celebrated. So when people, out, there's a lot of people outside the church who maybe do not hold to those same, same values. So on that surface level, we can say, yeah, we're actually a little bit similar to Thessalonica. However, when we dig deeper, some of these, some of these similarities are going to stop, okay? Um, so in Thessalonica and in other places where Greek, Greek and Roman culture was predominant, it was socially acceptable for young men to have sexual relations before marriage. It was actually even encouraged. Like, there's this prominent Roman scholar and philosopher named Cicero. He actually spent time in Thessalonica during the mid-first century B.C., and he is quoted as saying, Let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let desire and pleasure triumph from time over reason. And he said that specifically speaking about young men before they are married. Let them have all these pleasures. In addition to that, um, it was um, totally acceptable for men who owned female slaves to kind of use their human property for sex. Um, there were prostitutes all throughout that were available and to serve for you know sex for any man. Men who were married were able to have mistresses and concubines all for the sake of their own pleasure. What about the wife? You may ask. Well, the wife, her purpose was primarily viewed as she was the one who was supposed to bear the legitimate children and to manage the household. Okay, 
Now, it was so important that the wife bear these legitimate children, because men, they could have children by these other people, but those were not legitimate. These legitimate children were very, very important. And because that was so important, the only thing that was actually universally condemned for men was to have sex with another man's wife, because that might produce illegitimate children, okay? And on the rare occasion that someone did kind of speak out against this sort of sexual immorality in their culture, the concern behind the speaking out was typically that illegitimate children might be conceived. So that was the primary concern. All right, well, what about women? Okay, we see what was, what was okay for women to do, what, what was okay for men to do. What about women? Well, um, a Greek philosopher named Plutarch said, a wife should not be angry if her husband sought sexual pleasure with another woman. So women were expected, wives were expected to be okay with it. They were, not, they were expected to not be angry. Um, it also was said that the married woman should never have sexual relations with anyone but her husband. This commentator I read, he actually like had dug in and found some marriage contracts of the time, like during the time that all this was happening in Thessalonica, they would have these marriage contracts. And there was typically very, very strict stipulations on the wife, but not so much on the husband. And he quoted one specific marriage contract, and it said that the wife would not sleep apart from or be absent even for a day from her husband's house, or she would be deprived of her dowry. Like it was so terrifying that she might get away for one day and then bear an illegitimate child. You know, like it was just, it was so restricted for the wives. The husbands, on the other hand, did not have these kind of restrictions. They were prohibited from taking another wife, but they could have mistresses, they could have concubines. That was all completely okay. So now I want you to imagine that you are in this culture where it was normal and encouraged for your husband to have sex with prostitutes, to have mistresses, to have concubines, were which were essentially sex slaves, and he could have sex with female slaves if he wanted to, and you were expected to not be angry. You were never supposed to have sex with anybody but your husband, and you were going to bear the legitimate children, and that was your primary role. I mean, we're all women in here. I think we can imagine how that would feel. It would feel pretty crummy, and I don't think women would feel loved or valued in that kind of culture, okay? Now imagine that Paul comes along, and he tells your new church, guys, control your bodies. Stop doing the things that the Gentiles are doing. They don't know God. This is not okay. Who does it seem like Paul is targeting in this specific context? Well, most of the commentators I read said that he was probably, because of what was going on, speaking primarily to the men in this context, okay? He's primarily addressing the men in this situation. As a woman, I would, be, I would feel so seen and so valued by Paul's instruction because there was this huge disparity in what was okay for a woman and what was okay for a man. And Paul levels the field here, okay? He sets a new standard, um, and this standard that he is setting is one that values women, and it treats us as sisters, worthy of dignity and respect, okay? He's telling the men, quit treating the women as objects. Love them as your family, and this is huge, you guys. We see this family imagery all throughout the letter as he calls them brothers and sisters over and over again. Okay, now I want us to step back again, even though, or kind of bring it back into our own culture and context, because even though this was the specific situation that Paul was addressing in the Thessalonian church, we can't just limit the teaching to that. We can't just say, oh, Paul was just talking to the men. Yeah, the men need to hear this. No, the practices today look different. Like, we don't have concubines in our culture anymore. But the principles behind Paul's words are just as applicable today as they were to the Thessalonians, okay? So let's take a look at some of these principles behind what he was trying to do, what he was trying to instruct them in. The first principle 
is the principle of family. He is telling them part of why they are to stop these practices is because they are to see each other as family. This whole section on sexual immorality, the very beginning, he calls them brothers, or the, sec- the actual Greek word there is, or the word there is actually more tra- accurately translated brothers and sisters. So he's bringing to mind this family idea. And then in verse 9, which comes right after all of this, we didn't read that part yet, but he again references kind of this idea of being brothers, being family, okay? Um, think about like when you see kind of in movies, there's like the guy who's sleeping around or whatever, but then somebody kind of like takes advantage of his sister and he's like, hey, that's my sister. You know, like there's this double standard, like he's allowed to do whatever he wants. But then when somebody messes with his sister, there's this instinct to be protective and to protect and to not allow like your sister to be touched that way or abused or taken advantage of. Do you see kind of like that imagery is different? It's, it's incompatible. You can't view your sister as an object. She's your family. She's somebody that you want to protect. And Paul is trying to apply that imagery here. They were treating women as objects and not as sisters, worthy of dignity and respect. So I would ask in our culture, how much of the sexual immorality that we have in our culture would stop if everyone today truly viewed the opposite sex as a brother or a sister, worthy of care and protection and dignity and respect, rather than objects just for our own pleasure? I think we would see a lot less of the sexual immorality that is prevalent in our own culture today. So that is the first principle that we can draw into our own culture. What is the second principle? Well, I think we kind of go back to the example that Paul set, the example, uh, the principle of loss versus gain. Paul modeled in the last section that biblical love requires action. It often costs us something worldly, but it leads to spiritual gain. So here we see he's calling the Thessalonian church to act. He's saying, have control of your own body, okay? This would have cost them, the men, mostly, something, okay? It was going to cost them worldly pleasure that they were used to being okay with. They were used to being encouraged to do. He also reminds them in verse 5, hey, guys, the Lord is an avenger in this matter. Like, if you continue on in this, even though the culture around you thinks it's no big deal, the Lord does, and he's going to avenge this if, this if you guys don't repent and stop, okay? So I think that he is reminding them that God is going to bring judgment if you continue to practice these things. So we're seeing that he's trying to bring them spiritual gain. For them to stop would bring them spiritual gain because it would save them from disregarding God and being subject to God's judgment. So just like Paul modeled for them, they were being called to love one another in a way that costs them something worldly, but they would gain far more spiritually, okay? Now, I also want to say it's easy to read passages on sexual impurity and to feel this sense of shame, shame for mistakes that we've made in the past. And I just want to really make sure that we all see that that is not Paul's intention here. That's not what he's doing. So let's notice a few more things about the text. First, Paul's emphasis isn't necessarily on the person who is sinning and the fact that now they're dirty or they, they've been damaged in some way. That's not what he's saying at all. He doesn't really put a whole lot of emphasis on the person. Like, yes, he points out he wants them to be sanctified and holy, but really more of this focus here is on the person who's affected by that sin. Verse, verse 6 clearly says that they are to be pure, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. So his primary focus here is more on sex, how the sexual immorality that they were doing is hurting other people, okay? It's hurting their sisters in Christ. So he's not there to say, I mean, we kind of all kind of are familiar with this idea of purity culture where we're shamed and you're dirty now because you did this, you're less valuable. That's not at all what Paul's saying. Second, I want you to notice 
that Paul doesn't really mention anything about the sins of their past. This church was primarily made up of Gentiles who had converted, so they probably all had participated in these sins in their past. So Paul's not saying, God's the avenger. He's going to be avenging all those past mistakes that you made. He doesn't say that. That's not what he's saying. He's addressing sins that are currently going on. He's saying, hey, look what you're doing. Stop it. Like, I know the culture around you views this as no big deal, but it is a big deal. And if you continue living this way, then God is going to have to be the avenger here, okay? So this is not an issue of Paul trying to shame, heap shame on us if we are not perfect or if we have failed in some way in, like, this area. If you're still thinking that Paul wants to shame you, think about the verse in Romans that says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know who wrote that? Paul our same author. What about Philippians? But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Also written by Paul. What about Colossians? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Once again, words written by Paul, our same author. So I hope you can see that Paul is not one to heap guilt and shame on people for their past sins. So if you find yourself feeling guilt and shame from this passage, please don't. That is not at all Paul's purpose in writing this, and it's not just Paul. We see this all throughout the Bible, this message of forgiveness and grace in Christ, okay? We see messed up people all through the Bible being offered forgiveness, so don't leave this passage feeling shame. Instead, leave it feeling spurred on to put others ahead of yourself and to look out for your brothers and sisters as family. And what do you do for family? You protect them. And what is Paul doing here? He's protecting. He's protecting those who are getting hurt by this sexual sin that was prevalent in the culture. And he's protecting those who aren't letting go of the practices by warning them about God's vengeance and by advocating for their sanctification and holiness, okay? He is demonstrating loving one another well, and he's calling them to love one another well. He wants them to love in a way that changes their actions, sacrificing something worldly in order to gain something spiritually, okay? So now we're going to move on to this last section. And in this last section, he's going to start, he's going to move away from talking about sexual immorality, and he's going to kind of address sort of what seems like work ethic, but it's a little more complicated than that. This is kind of a tough one to understand because there's a lot of language and phrasing that doesn't really translate well. And so we're going to dig in. Let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Okay, so we're going to read chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right, so I hope you notice that once again, we are reminded of brotherly love right as we go into this next topic. So let's keep those lenses of brotherly love on as we read this section. So Paul tells them that as they love one another more and more, that they are to live quietly, to mind their own affairs, and to work with their hands. That is kind of confusing. So what is he saying here? Well, before he gets to that, I want you to notice what he says right before. 
first, he points out that they have done a great job of wanting, loving one another all throughout Macedonia. So just to clarify, the city of Thessalonica was inside the province of Macedonia. It was actually the capital city of Macedonia. So this would be similar to somebody telling like our church in Norman, I know we're not the capital of Oklahoma, but if they were to tell us, wow, you guys have done such a great job of really loving all of the Christians and churches all throughout Oklahoma. That's kind of what it's similar to saying, okay? It's also helpful to know that in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions that the churches in Macedonia are kind of known for their poverty. He kind of t- makes comments about even though they were poor, they still were generous with the little they do, that they did have, okay? So we kind of know from how the church in Thessalonica started. Thessalonica is kind of this big, booming city. It's the capital. There's more wealth there. There's more um, just financial means. We know that there were some prominent people who were a part of that church. So they had more just financial means than all these other churches in Macedonia. So a lot of commentators think that kind of the way that they offered this brotherly love that this is referring to probably had to do with them giving economic or financial aid to these churches and probably even distributing food or something along those lines. And Paul goes so far as to say that they loved all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So he's kind of using hyperbole to show, like, you didn't just love a couple of people or a couple of churches. Your love, your ability to provide for all these other needs in these other churches has extended all throughout Macedonia. It has had been far-reaching, okay? It is noteworthy. And he says, do, continue this. Do it more and more. So he points this out before these other instructions on living a quiet life and working with their hands. So... What does this mean, living a quiet life and working with your hands? Well, there's a couple of things that come into play here. Some commentators focus more on one than the other, and I kind of think that the, it, all, it all is part of it. So we're going to just look at both of these. Um, one of the things that gets pointed out a lot, and we see glimpses of this throughout the letter, is that there were people in the church that, it is, that, we, that commentators think had a skewed view of the return of Christ. Okay, We're going to get into this a lot more, this idea of the end times, the return of Christ. The next two um, like weeks of study are going to have a lot more of that, so I'm not really going to go into detail on it now. But in short, they seemed to think, well, Jesus is coming back any day now. Like He could be coming back tomorrow. It's probably going to be in the next couple of weeks, and so why should I even work? Okay, So there was this idea that you know Jesus was going to return so soon, so they stopped working. And as a result, you can imagine that they would then no longer be able to provide for others. Now they are dependent on other people for their needs. So it would have made it much harder for them to love and provide aid to these poor churches throughout Macedonia. Okay, And so this is kind of part of why people think he was instructing them to work with their hands, but this is not all of it. And again, we see more glimpses of this in other parts of the letter that we'll get to. So it kind of it was hindering their ability to love others, to show hospitality to strangers, and to meet the needs of others. Okay. The other thing that kind of gets pointed out a lot um, is why they might be instructed this is... Um, Well, go back to those ideas of being quiet, okay? So when we say be quiet, it's not really saying like, live quietly, okay? This is actually a phrase that was used in the literature of the time a lot, and it had meaning behind it, okay? So in the literature of the time, this phrase, being quiet, it typically described people who were respectable and did not cause problems in the community. It sort of indicated like a separation from public life. When this phrase of being quiet was combined with the phrase, mind your own business, it really indicated like a retiring from public life, like a retiring from politics, like no longer being in this political world. Now, this is a bit odd because most of the members of this church probably weren't these big prominent political figures. Um, And it also begs the question, well, like, is Paul saying that Christians should never be in politics? And don't worry, that's not what Paul is saying. We're going to kind of explain this a little bit. What he is doing, most people believe, is that he was addressing a specific institution that existed in the politics of the day in Thessalonica. 
and that is an institution called patronage, okay? Now, I had never heard of this before I prepared this talk, and there is like huge books written about this. So I'm gonna do probably a very terrible job of scratching the surface of what patronage means and looks like, and I hope I don't butcher it. But this will give us a little bit of an idea of what Paul is calling them away from. So to give a very brief overview, there were some people who were called patrons. These people were generally of a higher social class and they kind of had a number of what was called clients who typically were from an inferior um, social class. Now, patrons and clients had different obligations to each other. So patrons provided things like protection over their clients. They would maybe provide finances in different ways, maybe through loans or other things like that. Patrons had wealth, they had power, and they had prestige, and they were able to help their clients in various ways. Now, in return, the client was expected to support the patron politically, among other things, like they might be called on to do certain jobs. Um, now, patrons were more prestigious if they had a large number of clients, and clients could have more than one patron, which sometimes led to conflicting interests, okay? So one example of one of these patron-client relationships was if a slave was freed from his master. So when this happened, the former owner was then the patron, and then as the patron, they were expected to provide materially in some way for that former slave and to protect that slave if that slave ended up like in a court of law, like, you know, trying to defend themselves. So the patron would then have a responsibility to protect them. As a client, the freed slave was expected to do any number of things, including campaign for the patron's behalf if that patron ran for an election, doing certain jobs for them if that patron calls upon them to do a certain job, and one source said that they might even be expected to continue a sexual relationship that began while they were in servitude, okay? So you can see kind of like a power dynamic going here where they are kind of really, <laughs> they have all the power, they're providing this kind of um, support, money, protection, and then those clients are kind of indebted to them, and oftentimes the first thing that was listed had to do with supporting them politically, okay? So these relationships existed all over the place, and while I don't fully understand it, it seems clear that power, dependence, money, personal interests in politics would easily get all jumbled up. Now I want you to remember back in week one when we talked about the Thessalonian, like why the persecution was so fierce there, it was really a political persecution because they didn't want to lose their free status under Rome. So do you see how if you're in a client situation expected to promote somebody's political stance, but most of the politics are against the church, you're in a tricky situation now, right? So when Paul is telling them to live life quietly and mind their own affairs, phrases that in that time indicated separating themselves from politics, the commentators that I was reading kind of seemed to think that he was encouraging members of the church to leave these patron-client relationships, which they could have been depending on for their own personal finances rather than working. Paul had another solution for them. Instead of being provided for by these patrons, he says, work with your hands. Now, this was something that would have been shocking because it was considered of a lower class. This phrase, work with your hands, had something, had more like connotations of like the kind of work that a slave or an artisan would do. So it would have been considered a lowering of oneself rather than being kind of a more esteemed class that is able to enjoy these patron-client privileges. Now they're going to be of a lower class working with their hands to provide for themselves, okay? Paul didn't want the members of the church to be dependent on patrons whose politics they would be, expe be expected to campaign for and promote. So this isn't Paul saying, hey, if you're a believer, you better live a small, quiet life. Paul certainly didn't live a small, quiet life. His life was bold. His life was so loud that we're still reading about it today. 
And he's also not saying that Christians should never be in politics. We need Christians in influential positions in the government. What most people think he's doing here is he's calling them out of dependence on a political system that probably wasn't helping the cause of the church in that community, okay? And in order to do that and still be able to have the means to love others well and provide aid to those in need, it was going to cost them something. Not just the cost of having to work, but the cost of social class that it, this, that is associated with working with your hands, okay? It was going to cost them the approval of men. It was going to cost them social standing. It was going to cost them prestige. In other words, it was going to cost them something worldly, okay? But what were they going to gain? They were going to gain the ability to continue loving their neighbor well, to continue providing for the needs of all of these poor churches all throughout Macedonia without hindering the cause of the church in these politically charged persecution kind of relationships, okay? So they were going to reap spiritual rewards of just kind of benefiting the church body overall. So once again, we see Paul instructing them to love others with their actions, sacrificing something worldly in order to gain something spiritually, okay? Now, as we wrap up, I want us to think about all this, everything we've looked at today. We can leave today's passages with a lot of applications, okay? We can leave with the application of, hey, let's share the gospel like Paul did so that we too can have a ground of boasting like Paul. And guys, we should take that application. That is an awesome application. I hope everybody leaves here feeling motivated to do that. We can leave here with the application of let's be sexually pure and not sin against our brothers and our sisters sexually. Let's put their needs first and what's best for them first. And yeah, we should absolutely take that application. I hope all of us leave here feeling motivated to love our brothers and sisters well in this way. We can leave today's passage with the application of being willing to lower ourselves for the sake of meeting the needs of others or not putting ourselves in a position where we compromise our own values in order to achieve financial gain. I think we can totally get those applications from this last section we just looked at. And yes, we should absolutely take that application. These are all great application points that we can take with us as we leave here. But we would be missing something huge if we also didn't leave here with the application of radically loving others in ways that go beyond words, of having love that's more than just a fuzzy feeling, but instead loving others in a way that leads to action, loving in a way that sacrifices worldly things in order to gain spiritual things. And guys, that application, that kind of love, it should extend far beyond these couple of specific situations that Paul addresses with the Thessalonians. That kind of love should affect all areas of our lives. It should permeate everything. I mean, isn't Jesus the ultimate example of this? Sacrificing everything worldly, giving up his own life to gain everything spiritually, the souls of all of us. He's the ultimate example of this, okay? Guys, if this is something that when we look honestly at ourselves that we can say, I don't really live that way, let's ask ourselves, am I too focused on the worldly cost and not having eyes for or desiring the spiritual benefit? Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how powerful it is. I thank you for the way that it just convicts me to my core when I dig in. And I pray that everybody here has encountered you in some way and that we all are feeling spurred on to love others well. I pray that as we discuss this, that you would give us fruitful discussion and that this would just continue on as we go throughout our weeks, that we would continue to ponder these things and that they would become things that take root in our lives and change the way we live. It's in your name we pray. Amen.